0: Good evening, everyone. My name is Irini Mustaki, and I'm a professor and deputy head for teaching in the Department of Statistics at the LSE. I would like to welcome you all, and especially our speaker, Tim Harford, to the LSE online public lecture hosted by the Department of Statistics. Before I introduce our speaker, I would like to brief you on the running order of the lecture. The lecture is expected to last about 40 minutes, and as usual, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to Tim. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will ask as many as possible. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students. We should finish by 7 o'clock. For those Twitter users um, in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE numbers. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Tim Harford is an economist, a journalist, and a broadcaster. He's an author of The Next 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy Messy and the million-selling book The Undercover Economist. Tim is also a senior columnist at the Financial Times and the presenter of Radio 4's More or Less, the author and presenter of also the new podcast Cautionary Tales, among other things. I highly recommend if you haven't already listened to his uh, podcast to start doing it. There's a variety of topics all of immense interest. He was made an OBE for services to improving economic understanding in 2019. In the area of large and complex data and at a time where scientific arguments and findings are seen with doubt by many people, we need more than ever to be able to understand published numbers what they represent and measure, but also very importantly, the validity of the data used to compute them. Statistics and data and analysts play a key role in participation in the process of collecting, analyzing and reporting data in a truthful and easy to understand way for the general public. As educators, we have a lot of responsibility in training and preparing our students for tackling problems, complex and facing day-to-day challenges. The more of us can understand and use numbers, the more powerful we can become in changing the world for a better one. Tim Harford's work has focused tremendously in this direction, and for that, we are all very grateful. The Department of Statistics at the LSE is at the front line in building and strong data science research and teaching programs, both at the undergraduate and postgraduate level. Many aspects of the research carried out in the department focuses on actuarial and financial investigations, social science applications, as well as helping to address this global health crisis. I encourage you to look at our website for further information on our teaching programs and our research portfolio. Taking an extract from Tim's book press release in how to make the world add up, Tim Harford takes us deep into the world of disinformation and bad research and misplaced motivation to find those priceless jewels um, of data and analysis. Without further ado, I would like to give the floor to Tim Harford.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be uh, back uh, speaking at LSE, albeit uh, adapting to adapting to twenty twenty. Let's put it that way, shall we? And um, I wanted to to get to the numbers, but first. I wanted to tell you a little story. The story is about a man called Abraham Bradius. Abraham Bradius, you have to understand, is nobody's fool. He is, by the turn of the 20th century, the world's leading authority on the Dutch old masters, in particular Rembrandt and Johannes Vermeer. In the 1880s, Abraham Bradius had made his reputation by demonstrating that a number of alleged paintings by Vermeer were in fact forgeries. And by the 1930s, at the uh, age of 82, he was enjoying a retirement swan song. He'd just published a magisterial work on the paintings of Rembrandt, and in the process had identified a, a large number of forgeries and misattributions. And it was a this time in his glorious semi-retirement, that Abraham Bradius was approached by a charming Dutch lawyer called Gerard Boone. Gerard Boone had something he wanted to show to Bradius. Let me just uh, see if I can give you an inkling of it. A painting called Christ at Emmaus. And Gerard Boone asked Bradius um, what he thought of the provenance of this painting. Because his theory was that this was a hitherto unknown work by Johannes Vermeer. When Bradius saw the painting, he was spellbound. He later wrote in a, a magazine article uh, I had difficulty controlling. My emotion. Uh, This is not just a masterpiece, but the masterpiece of Johannes Vermeer of Delft, quite different from every other Vermeer, and yet every inch a Vermeer. He described it as ongerecht, the Dutch word for virginally pure and untouched, which was an ironic choice of words because this painting is a rotten fake, corrupt to the core, and hardened with industrial plastic. It wasn't just Abraham Radius who was taken in. Uh, The whole Dutch art world was spellbound by the prospect of another painting by Vermeer, the Boymans Museum in Rotterdam, always trying to vie for supremacy with the Amsterdam Museums. Uh, paid a vast sum of money for this painting, and Bradius himself contributed to the fund to help buy it. And once this painting was accepted as a Vermeer, uh, several others in a very similar style quickly emerged. The Second World War was looming, but in late 1930s Netherlands, uh, there was great excitement about these beautiful new masterpieces. Now, All this was fine and for a number of years of course no one was really very concerned about art. It was 1939 to 1945. And then in May 1945 with the the war in Europe at an end, a couple of Allied officers knocked on the door of 321 Kaisersgracht, very well-to-do street in Amsterdam. Uh, And uh, they wanted to speak to the owner, a gentleman called Han van Meegeren, a former artist, now an art dealer. And they said to him, uh, Mr. van Meegeren, there's a problem because we've just discovered Hermann Goering's vast treasure trove of stolen art from all across Europe. And in that treasure trove, Is a painting by Johannes Vermeer, uh, Christ and the woman taken in adultery. And the Nazis say they got it from you and they've got the receipts. So you've just sold a priceless Dutch masterpiece to the Nazis. That's treason, that's a hanging offence. And so von Meegren, who was a, a charismatic little man with a silvery moustache and a sort of jowls that were slowly thickening as he got older, was taken into custody. And after uh, a couple of days of questioning, he cracked. You fools, he said. You think I sold a Vermeer to the Nazis? There's no Vermeer. I painted it myself. What Hermann Göering had was a Van Meegeren. And this was a sensation. This was a, a hammer blow to the reputation of the Dutch art scene, but also uh, there was a certain joy in it. Uh, van Meegeren wasn't a traitor after all, or at least so he said. He was, in fact, a kind of Robin Hood figure, somebody who's, who'd swindled the invaders and cheated Goering himself. So, this is a fascinating story. And you're wondering, you are wondering, I know, why this lecture is being presented by the Department of Statistics and not the Department of Art History. We will get to the statistics. But the question that I have in my mind, when I hear this story is, how was it that van Meegwen got away with this for so long? Let me just share my screen again. So, look at this. This is the painting that spellbound Abraham Bradius, that he said was virginally pure, that was the ultimate masterpiece of Johannes Vermeer. I'm just going to show you a painting by Johannes Vermeer. It's, I believe in the power of suspense. Hopefully, you are all as spellbound as Bradius was. Let's try again. There we go. That is a Vermeer. And it's quite a different thing to that, is it not? Look at the forgery. It's not really that good, is it? Look at the real thing. This painting is called Woman Reading a Letter. Look at the detail on that chair, where he's picked out the felt, the studs. Look at the quality of the light, the subtle quality of the light. The ambiguity. Is, is this woman pregnant, perhaps? And what's in the letter? She's, she's breathless. She's waiting for news. Is it good news? Is it bad news? We don't know. This is a masterpiece. This is a rotten fraud. And it doesn't even look like a Vermeer. It's not even a bad Vermeer. What's going on with the eyelids? That's, that's not a Vermeer. How could Han van Meegeren get away with this? What was it that he understood about human nature? I think it was something very simple. van Meegren understood that sometimes we want to be fooled. We want to be fooled. And that's why I begin chapter one of my book with a story about art forgery, a story that doesn't have any numbers in it at all. Because my experience over the last few years, presenting more or less, writing for the Financial Times, fact-checking, the Brexit referendum, the election of Donald Trump, has taught me something, which is that, first and foremost, what we believe is shaped by our emotions, by our political identities, by our, our culture, by what our friends think, by our desire to be on the right side of an argument. Not always, of course, not on every issue, but emotions, feelings, prejudices, desires, they come first. The evidence comes second. Surely if the Brexit referendum has taught us anything, it's taught us that. And so when I set out to write a book that helped people think more clearly about the world, using numbers, of course, yes, the first thing I had to face up to was the fact that the leading experts in the world can be fooled if they want to be fooled. We're all shaped by our emotions, we're all shaped by our politics, by our culture, by our social groups. If we don't start by facing up to that, well we've fooled ourselves before we've even started. That's why I began the book with the story of Abraham Gradius. And there's a lot of very interesting research done on the topic of motivated reasoning wishful thinking, which is I suppose a particular kind of motivated reasoning. Um, One simple study that I'd like to describe was was done by a behavioural economist um, here in Oxford, University of Oxford. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Oxford by the way, sorry. Um, His name was Guy Mayraz. and what Guy Mayraz did was to show his experimental subjects these graphs. He would say these graphs are Uh, they're the price of wheat over time. Actually, they were, I think, snipped from a series of stock price movements, but it doesn't matter. Show them the graphs. This is the price of wheat over time. The task that I need you to perform is to make a forecast of the price of wheat. And if you make a good forecast of the price of wheat, if it's close to what actually transpires, you'll get a cash bonus. The closer your forecast is to what happens, The bigger the bonus. So there's a payment for forecasting accuracy. But he also told half of the people in the study, um, you're farmers. And what that means is, if wheat is expensive, you'll get a different bonus, a separate bonus from your forecasting bonus, because wheat's expensive and you're a farmer. The other half of the people in the study, he said, "You're, you're bakers. Bakers want inexpensive wheat. It's the the input to the bread. And so, as well as a payment for forecasting accuracy, you'll get extra money if the price of wheat is low. What Guy has found was that people's forecasts, remember, you're paid to be right, their forecasts were systematically skewed towards what they hoped was going to happen. So the, the bakers wanted low priced wheat and they also predicted low priced wheat. the farmers wanted high priced wheat and they predicted high priced wheat. So our views of the world our expectations about what 's going to happen, shaped by what we wanted to happen or another study by um, the behavioral economists Linda Babcock and George Lowenstein, uh, they asked people to read a document summarizing a real a court case which was described a motorbike accident. And the motorbike was suing the driver of the car. The motorcyclist was suing the driver of the car for injury. And so they got to read all these real documents. And then they were asked to either um, construct the case for the prosecution. Uh, basically, uh, the driver was highly uh, at fault and should pay a lot. Or the case for the defence saying it wasn't really the driver's fault and the driver shouldn't have to pay anything. So people were separated, prosecution, defence. The prosecution were arguing for a high amount, the defence arguing for a low amount. And they were also asked and rewarded uh, for an accurate prediction. They were asked to predict what actually happened in the case. What did the judge actually decide about the damages? And again, People were systematically biased by the perspective that they'd taken, by what they hoped would be true. Or another example, the psychologist Ziva Kunda um, showed people a, a pretty credible sounding newspaper report that showed that uh, if you were a woman and you had a, drink, drank a lot of caffeine, it raised your risk of breast cancer. Um, I have no idea whether the report was true or not, but it's you know, it the kind of study you read in the newspaper. And she gave it to a whole bunch of people and asked them to evaluate how credible they thought this study was. And most people thought it was pretty credible, with one interesting exception. Women who drank lots of coffee did not think that this report was credible. And we reached the conclusions that we want to reach. Now, you might say, of course, what if you're an expert? What if you really know what you're doing? So I'm not going to read a big passage from the book, but uh, I just wanted to get the quote right. The French satirist Moliere once wrote, a learned fool is more foolish than an ignorant one. And Benjamin Franklin commented, so convenient a thing it is to be a reasonable creature, since it enables us to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to. So what Moliere and Ben Franklin were arguing was the smarter you are, the more expert you are, the easier you're going to find to fool yourself. Well, I mean, could that really be true, though? Could that really be true? Could expertise actually get in the way? Well, here's one indication that it might. Just look at opinion polls asking Americans how worried they are about climate change, how big a problem they think climate change is. And you won't be surprised to find that Republicans are not as worried as Democrats. Democrats think it's a big problem and Republicans tend not to. Then ask yourself, well, what about comparing uneducated Republicans and uneducated Democrats? Educated Republicans, educated Democrats. Or what about comparing Republicans Republicans and Democrats who score highly on a measure of scientific literacy or who score poorly on a measure of scientific literacy. Well, either way, you find the same thing. The more education they've got, the more scientific knowledge they've got, the further apart Republicans and Democrats are on the topic of climate change. And wherever you stand on climate change, I know where I stand, but wherever you stand on climate change, you would think more facts, more information, more education, surely going to bring people closer together they're more likely to accept the, the best available current theory on climate change, the, the scientific consensus. That's not what happens at all. So what is it about giving people more information, giving people more education, actually pulling them apart? Well, One um, interesting study of this was done by Charles Tabor and Milton Lodge. They're political scientists. Um, and they, um, they asked people to, uh, to evaluate um, arguments pro and against particular po- political propositions. This kind of research gets done a lot, and you tend to find people are, are really very fluent uh, at constructing arguments to support their position, to attack an opposing position, or to... Um, but they're, they're, excuse me, they're less fluent at defending, their, uh, defending an opposing position or attacking their own position. Uh, but what Tabor and Lodge found was that the, the more expertise people had, the more highly educated that they had, the the bigger the gap between the arguments they were able to summon in favor of their own position and the arguments they were able to summon in favor of the opposing position. It it was as though their expertise was was almost actively enabling them to filter out arguments or to ignore information that they could have uh, taken on board and used to construct an argument. They didn't want to do that. That's That's strange and, I think, a little disturbing for those of us who believe in the value of education. And I'm I'm quite conscious now that we're giving this lecture at the LSE, and I believe in the value of education. But it shows education is not enough. Expertise is not enough. Because if you are sufficiently committed to a point of view, if you already know what you want to find, well, the more you know, the more expertise you have, the easier, you're going to find to get there. Let me do something brave and try and show you uh, a forgery again. See whether we can do this this time. I don't know why it didn't work before, but you know that's all part of the excitement. Let's have a look at this picture. This is the forgery, Christotomaios. This is the painting that spellbound Abraham Bradius. If you or I look at it, we think to ourselves. This is not a very good picture. This doesn't really look like a Vermeer. But what did Abraham Radius see? First of all, look at the bread, the detail on the bread, the the white dots. That's very distinctive. That's very similar to bread in a beautiful Vermeer painting, very famous painting called The Milkmaid. Look at the colors, the blues and yellows. They're very highly authentic, they're seventeenth century pigments, or as, as close as Van Meegeren could find, really match the kind of palette that Vermeer was using. Look at that white jug. That's a that's a proper antique from the sixteen hundreds. It was found in Van Meegeren 's own studio, he had it. Look at the composition. Now to you or I, or certainly to, to me, the composition doesn't really mean anything. But to Abraham Radius, it' echoed Caravaggio. And that was important because here's the thing about Abraham Bradius. He had a pet theory that Johannes Vermeer had gone to Italy, had seen Caravaggio paintings, had come back and had been influenced by them. Vermeer, you have to understand, is a bit of a mysterious figure. We don't know much about his life. So really, this was just a, um, it's just a pet theory. Radius had no way of knowing that it was true. But what that meant was that when van Meegeren, in the guise of his envoy Gerard Boone, showed Abraham Radius this painting, he wasn't showing him a painting. He was showing an 82-year-old man that he'd been right about something all his life. This was the missing piece that Abraham Radius wanted to see. One more thing. An oil painting takes 50 years to fully harden. If you put a little bit of alcohol on a cotton swab, and you just very gently rub on the surface of an oil painting. Pigment will come off unless the painting is decades old. So any modern forgery faces that problem. And Abraham Radius knew this and he'd identified many forgeries by testing the paint in that way. Van Meegren knew it as well. And so he experimented with uh, mixing his authentic 17th century pigments with phenol formaldehyde, better known as bakelite, and baking the paintings at about uh, 100 degrees uh, for a couple of hours. They were hardened with industrial plastic. And so all of these clues that you or I would never pick up on Abraham Bradius was able to deploy them all as evidence that this painting was the real thing, and that it was enough evidence to ignore a really important fact, which was that the painting did not look like anything Johannes Vermeer had ever painted in his life. So that's the power of motivated reasoning, and that's what it can do even to the expert. So that's why when I was writing this book, I wanted to give people some technical advice. Not, not highly technical advice, but I wanted to talk about statistical pitfalls and the way that numbers can be used to guide us or to lead us astray. But before I did that, I felt that I, I had to help people be wiser about themselves. It doesn't matter how much you know about statistics. If you really want to fool yourself, you'll fool yourself just as Abraham Brady has fooled himself. I want to tell you how the story ends in a moment, but let me just give you a couple of the habits of mind, the rules of thumb that um, I found useful when, I was, when I've been presenting, more or less, when I've been, um, when I've been working on this book. Um, and the habit that I'm emphasising now, which is rule one in the book, the book offers 10 rules for thinking differently about numbers, is this. Just notice your emotions. Notice your feelings. I know I'm, I'm kind of sounding like Yoda with a calculator now. You know, hate leads to fear, fear leads to anger, anger leads to the dark side, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm probably, don't complain, I'm misquoting and I'm speaking forward and I've got the accent wrong, but you know the kind of thing. It, what I'm saying is you can't think clearly through a fog of, uh, of anger or self-righteousness or hopefulness, wishful thinking, politics. And of course, we all have feelings all the time about the claims that we see. And I'm not saying ignore your feelings or suppress your feelings. All I'm saying is notice your feelings. You see something come up on Facebook, on Twitter, TikTok, you see a newspaper headline, something on the TV, before you delete, retweet, like, share, write an angry response, before you do any of those things, just notice, how am I feeling? How does this claim make me feel? Is it like Christ of and Abraham Bradius? Is it making me feel that I've been right all my life? That's a dangerous feeling. Or is it making me feel denial, anger? It can't be right. It's fake news. I want to dismiss it. Whatever you feel, notice. And then go back to the claim and and start thinking. Because if you've noticed your emotion, you've at least got a chance of sensibly evaluating it. I mean, I really found that wishful thinking has been so powerful during the pandemic. the people immediately respond that they want to be helpful. They want certain things to be true. So, for example, the um, I don't know if you received this Facebook post. Actually, I didn't see it on Facebook. I, somebody just forwarded it me on uh, on a news group, an email newsletter, you know, old school. It's like we used to do things in the late 1990s. And um, I'm getting old. <laughs> but it, it was, it was oh, here's, here's some really helpful advice about COVID. And it comes from of oh, this guy who's a pediatrician at Stanford or whatever. Uh, and you look through it and there's a lo- load of advice about, oh, if you um, uh, you need to drink uh, hot liquids because the virus really likes cold liquids, so don't drink anything with ice, drink hot tea. Uh, or if you're sneezing, you haven't got COVID, definitely that's that's a cold. Uh, the, the virus I- is immediately killed by uh, sunlight. Um, just a whole bunch of stuff, some of which was vaguely accurate, some of which was nonsense, uh, none of which was based on any scientific evidence. It was just somebody who'd gathered together a bunch of stuff and, and all its advice just started accumulating and circulating. And sometimes it was credited to this pediatrician who had nothing to do with it. Sometimes it was credited to um, this uncle of my friend. That's quite a, my friend's uncle says this. Uh, sometimes it was credited to um, the medical board of Stanford University. It's always the same basic stuff. Uh, why did that go viral in, in March when people didn't really know what to think? It's because people didn't really know what to think and they saw something and they thought, well, this looks, this looks sensible and I want to help. I want my friends to be safe. I want to be helpful. So they shared it, even though it's basically nonsense, mostly harmless nonsense but nonsense. People didn't think about how they were feeling. They didn't really think, is this in any way credible? Why haven't I heard this from any official source? They just shared it. Or another piece of wishful thinking, um, uh, researchers at the University of Oxford, quite early on in the pandemic, in April, uh, published what you might call the tip of the iceberg model. They said, look, um, what if, uh, what if like, 99.9% 99.9% of people who get COVID don't have any symptoms. What if they're just sort of accumulating um, antibodies and developing immunity, um, but they have no symptoms and no one, knows, no one ever tests them. No one has any idea. Um, and it was clear that that, we, that was that was possible. There were quite a lot of asymptomatic cases. And the researchers said, look, if you look at deaths, and um, how because we can be fairly sure about deaths, fairly sure about deaths. If you look at how deaths occur. That's perfectly consistent with the virus being quite rare and quite deadly. And it's also consistent with the, the virus being everywhere and really safe. And, and if that's true, then all the people who've died, are that's all the people who are going to die, because we're basically through it, we're at herd immunity. And this was April. And I spoke to the researchers and they said, look, what we're really trying to do, I and mean, they did take their hypothesis seriously, but they said what we're really trying to do is to make the case that we need antibody testing. We need to be able to tell who has had this virus and who hasn't. And at the time, antibody testing didn't exist. There's a lot of different possibilities consistent with the very patchy data that we've got. That's what they said. But what people heard was, maybe it's all over. It's April, and maybe it's all over. So many people grabbed onto that idea, shared it, newspaper articles written about it. And people are still emailing me to tell me that this idea is true, even though it just we've got overwhelming evidence that it isn't true. It might have been true, it was worth exploring, but at the same time, you've always got to guard against wishful thinking. So I gave you one piece of advice, um, notice your emotions. Let me very briefly, because I want to take some questions, very briefly uh, give you a, a couple more. So a second thing that I advise that people do, rule, rule two, is to avoid premature enumeration. So premature enumeration is a you know, problem I often have uh, with my wife. She will be listening to Radio 4 and she will hear some statistical claim and she'll turn to me because she assumes I've just got this big spreadsheet at the back of my brain and she'll say, is that true? What they just said, is that thing true? And my answer very often, very annoying, is "Well, it depends what they mean. I don't know whether it's true because I don't really know what they're saying. Just to give you a really simple example, there was an argument a couple of years ago about how many nurses the government was employing in the NHS. You remember when we used to argue about you know, cute stuff like that? And the government said they were em- em- employing more nurses, and the opposition said they were em- employing fewer nurses, and they were both right. And well, how could they both be right? Well, because it depends what you mean by a nurse. So, depending on whether, for example, two part time nurses count as two nurses. Or one nurse, one full time equivalent nurse, you know, the, the statistics changed. Uh, depending on whether you counted health visitors or midwives as nurses, the statistics changed. It's a simple example, but so often, we, when we look at the data, we think we know what's being described, and very often we don't know what the data are describing. We don't know what the defi- definition is. And here again, the smarter you are, the more comfortable you are with mathematics, with statistics. And the more in danger you are of committing this error of premature enumeration, because you immediately start multiplying, dividing, cross-correlating, testing this, testing that, but you've actually got no idea what any of these numbers are referring to. A study that says violent video games cause violence. Okay, what do you mean by a violent video game? Is Pac-Man a violent video game? Pac-Man eats things. Maybe they're thinking of Grand Theft Auto, What do you mean by causes violence? Do you mean people going out and starting fights? Or do you mean, um, according to the hot sauce paradigm, which is a paradigm in psychology, that they're willing to add Tabasco sauce to a drink that someone else then has to drink? I mean, these are are pretty different concepts you have to pin down. There are different ways of measuring things, different definitions. And before you have an argument about whether video games cause violence, you probably want to know what a violent video game is and what violence is. Otherwise, it's not going to be a very interesting argument. And I think about the financial crisis of 2007-2008, and I I wonder how much of that was premature enumeration. Very smart people with amazing spreadsheets, fantastic cross-correlations. They didn't really know what any of those numbers actually referred to. And one more little rule of thumb. Take a step back. Appreciate the view. What I mean by this is any statistical claim, any number, needs context to interpret it. So is it big or small? Is it getting larger or smaller, going up or down? How how does the situation in the UK compare to the situation in France? What about the situation in the UK 10 years ago, or 20 years ago? There are lots and lots of different ways to get context, but very often, You just see a claim presented with no context at all. And then you've really got no idea what it means. And I have to say, it's not difficult to do this. Let me give you a really simple example. Um, Matt Hancock, the uh, health secretary of the UK, over the summer said, if everyone who's overweight in the UK lost five pounds, two or three kilos, then the National Health Service would save 100 million pounds over five years. Loads of people emailed me and said, well, is that true? How does he know that? You know, blah, 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 what's the evidence base? Just everyone chill chill out, just relax. We don't need to know how he knows it. First, we need to know what he's saying. Do the maths. How many people are there in the country? Nearly 70 million. We're talking about a hundred million pounds. Okay, so it's like a bit more than a pound a person. And it's over five years. You don't really need a calculator to get to 30 pence per person per year. So what Matt Hancock said was, well, if everyone who's overweight lost some weight, the National Health Service would save 30 pence per person per year, to which my answer is, huh, all right, whatever. I mean, if you want to lose some weight, lose some weight. If it makes you feel better, more energy, great. Um, don't feel too guilty about the NHS because Matt Hancock says it doesn't make sense any difference. That's what I mean by context. And that's what I mean by the kind of operation you can do very easily. I mean, my nine-year-old son doesn't need a calculator to do that kind of maths. It's not hard. And most of us should know the population of the country in which we live. And if we don't, there's this thing called Google, very useful, super convenient. So take a step back, get the context. So I've given you three rules. There were were 10, actually there were 11 in the book. There's a golden rule as well. Rule one was notice your feelings. Rule two was avoid premature enumeration. Ask what is actually being measured. And rule three was step back and get context. And I know they sound like pretty simple rules. And you know, the the secret of the book is they're all pretty simple rules. This is not as hard as we often make it out to be. Uh, Statistics is a complex and subtle subject, full of vital uh, technical knowledge, full of pitfalls and traps for the unwary. But when you're reading the newspaper, you don't need a PhD in statistics to think clearly about the claims that you're reading. You just need to slow down, take a deep breath, get some context, and who knows, maybe buy a copy of How to Make the World Add Up. Before I take questions, I just wanted to tell you what happened to on Megren. Remember? The Dutch art forger, the one who fooled Abraham Bradius, fooled all these art experts, who was arrested at the, the end of the Second World War and seemed that he was going to be hanged for treason and then explained that uh, he'd fooled the Nazis and really uh, was more of a national hero than anything else, wouldn't you think? Well, those claims were sensational. Uh, and Van Meegeren was a kind of hero. The, the experience of the Second World War for the Dutch was uh, was a brutal one, as for as for so many people. But but one of the things I think that was hard to take was the sense that there had been so many collaborators with the Nazis. And at the end of the war, there was this effort to find and to prosecute the collaborators, and people were just tired. They wanted a different narrative. They wanted to hear a feel-good story. And here's this guy, Han van Meegeren. Who's ripped off Hermann Goering? is Isn't it brilliant? Isn't it priceless? There's a story that uh, is told about what Hermann Goering did when, when he heard the news, when he heard that he'd been ripped off like this for tens of millions of guilders. He, he apparently looked as though he had learned for the first time there was evil in the world. This is Goering awaiting trial in Nuremberg. It's such a delicious story. It's also completely false. Never happened, no evidence that it happened. But biographer after biographer has repeated it because we want it to be true. And we wanted Han van Meegeren to be this plucky Robin Hood figure, the guy who stuck two fingers up to the Nazis. The truth is he wasn't. He was another collaborator. In the middle of the Second World War, He was hosting Nazis at his mansion. He was holding parties surrounded by prostitutes and jewels and prostitutes draped with jewels. He was raking it in at a time when the Dutch were starving in the streets of Amsterdam. He wrote anti-Semitic poetry. He published with great effort a a book of anti-Semitic cartoons and poems. Really luxurious thing vicious stuff called Tekeningen I, And Tekeningen was uh, found, a copy of Tekeningen was found in Adolf Hitler's library with the inscription to my beloved Fuhrer with admiration, Han van Meegeren. And you think to yourself, if only they'd known that, if only they'd known that when Han van Meegeren was on trial for forgery, for ripping off the Nazis, was a national hero. If only they'd known, if only they'd discovered that book. But they did know. They had discovered the book, was publicly aware, it was reported in the newspapers. Nobody cared. It was just dismissed as fake news. Van Meegeren said, oh yeah, I signed a load of books and um, somebody else must have written the dedication. Of course I would never have sent a book to Adolf Hitler. And people bought it. People bought it. Because they wanted to believe the story, because the alternative was too painful. So Han van had not only pulled off this amazing con of Abraham Bradius painting these fake Vermeers, he'd pulled off an even more audacious con. He'd fooled the entire Dutch public into thinking that rather than being a grubby little Nazi, he was in fact a national hero. He died shortly after being found guilty of forgery a heart attack. There was an opinion poll conducted shortly before his death. And after the Dutch Prime Minister, Han van Meegeren was the most popular man in the country. And that is the power of wishful thinking. Thank you for listening. and I do hope we've got some questions coming in. I'm very happy to answer whatever you have have in mind.
0: Thank you very much for a very stimulating lecture, uh, Tim. I kept actually uh, contemplating where does the truth lie, uh, you know, and um, you said education is not enough. Uh, obviously, it's not. I mean, so many other things like compassion is, is needed, but those are also things as I think uh, educators can, can help uh, to achieve. So I, I, I'm just saying we we'll now open the floor to, uh, to questions, and uh, please... Um, you know, uh, type your short questions and, on the Q&A uh, function and, you know, uh, write your affiliation as well, if possible. But maybe I, I can start with uh, the first question, which is what is your biggest challenge when you're actually uh, faced uh, with people who don't believe in, in scientific uh, reasoning and how your emotions interfere um, in, in those uh, debates?
1: Yeah, so... I mean, I realize I've, I've painted quite a, a dark picture in some ways, but in, mm-hmm. in many ways the book is hopeful, I think. We, we, start, ho- we, we start grim and we get hopeful. Uh, and actually the introduction, before we even get to Van Miegeren, the introduction is all about statisticians saving tens of millions of lives. Okay, so this is an amazing science. It's so important. Uh, it's not just about spin and misinformation. It's about figuring out what's true. So I, that is something that if I told you a different story, if I talked about a different chapter, I would have given you a different impression. But I, I am an optimist. I do think this is possible. Um, so it's so what I mean. What, what do we do when we're faced with people who don't want to accept it? Um, it's it's hard. And of course, I get I get a lot of emails. Uh, I got an email from someone last night. He was very angry about something I'd written um, that maybe implied that Donald Trump, you know, wasn't always scrupulously honest in his presentation of statistics and he, he said when was the last time you publicly admitted to a mistake you're just the same as Donald Trump and I was able to say um the third of September here's the apology retraction correction and here's the here's the error in print with the correction in the financial times I mean uh, I don't know whether that wins people over or not but um you know you've just got to People ask you a question and give them the answer. But what I find is, is helpful is to try to get people to explore what's going on, explore the details of a topic, rather than to get in this sort of confrontational mode of, um, of persuasion. So there's some, some really interesting studies I discussed towards the end of the book, which is about curiosity, where I just explained, for instance, the uh, researchers who will say to people, uh, just, uh, just do, do you know how a flush laboratory works? How well do you think you know how a flush laboratory works on a scale of one to 10? And people will say, Oh, you know, about an eight. I'm, I think, I'm, yeah, I know how it works. And then the researchers will go, Oh, that's great. And here's a pen and paper. Just, just explain how it works. Draw a diagram if you want. At which point people realize, Oh, it's, I actually don't know. Um, and they'll admit, oh, I wasn't boasting. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to fool you. I was fooling myself. I thought I understood. I don't understand. So that's interesting. So this, it's called the illusion of explanatory depth. But what I find more interesting is you can do the same thing. For, there's been a follow-up study. You do the same thing with politics. So you can say, okay, um, how well do you understand the idea of, say, a cap-and-trade system to deal with climate change? And people will go, yeah, yeah, I kind of, I kind of understand that. And you say, great, so interesting. All right, just explain it to me. Here's a piece of paper. Knock yourself out. And again, people realize, I don't don't really know. I don't really know actually how it works. I don't know how unilateral sanctions on Iran work. I don't really understand the difference between the customs union and the single market. I don't know. I thought I knew when you actually ask me. I don't know. What's interesting about that study, though, is that getting people to try and answer those questions um, makes them... Um, makes them sort of face up to their their own limitations. They start to realise, oh, maybe it's not really worth dying in a ditch over this problem. So people start to have a better opinion of their political opponents. They start to moderate their own views. It's a very, very simple thing that I'm really saying that you might want to consider doing. Very simple thing, which is just to ask people to explain. Don't ask them to justify. Don't ask them to explain why they believe something. Just ask them to, to just describe the world. And it's potentially a tremendously powerful trick.
0: Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to actually read the remaining eight uh, rule of thumbs for, in your book. Uh, so I'm just going to go to the Q&A uh, uh, section now. And we have more than 1,000 people registering, uh, registered for the event. So the first question I can see is, what's the statistic that persists that's wrong that you wish we would stop quoting? And this is from Jackie Francis from Birmingham.
1: Uh, Gosh, I mean, there are so, well, there's so many possibilities. Um, I'm I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be positive about statistics. I know I've told you this terrible story about this terrible man. Um, But I mean, I do think that we need to try thinking of statistics as sources of illumination rather than sources of misinformation. But, well, I've got a personal answer to this question. So I mentioned um, that I made a mistake. So let me, let me tell you what the mistake was. Um, I wrote a piece for the, for the Financial Times a few weeks ago. just trying to evaluate the risk of COVID for a friend of mine, uh, who's 62, lives in London. And I went through the Office for National Statistics, got the best data on how many infections there are each day. I went through all of that, got the data on... How is a 62-year-old white man, no underlying complications? What, what's the risk that a case of COVID would be fatal for him? did all the maths. And I, I figured it was probably about a one in two million chance of death every day. Every day that he took the same kind of infection risk that a typical uh, British person is taking, which I mean, we don't really know what, what that behavior looks like. Um, so one in two million. And then I said, okay, well, what else is a one in two million risk of death? So I went to a couple of websites with some some credible sources. Um, Skiing, one in two million. Uh, Motorbike riding, one one in two million every time you go for a bike ride. um, Horse riding, every time you go for a horse ride, about one in two million. So those are are the sort of things. It gives you a kind of perspective. It's like, well, horse riding is not completely safe. Motorbike riding is not completely safe. It's not that dangerous either. I mean, you wouldn't think of it as being an absurd risk to, to ride a motorbike once nor should my friend think of it as an absurd risk going out the door. So we'll get to the, the wrong statistic that I wish people would stop mentioning, because I then made a mistake. Uh, I misunderstood something or somebody else maybe had made the mistake and I didn't catch the mistake. It's not quite clear. But I said, oh, uh, also the risk of taking a bath, it's also one in two million risk of death. Um, turns out that's wrong. So one in two million is a one in three million actually is about your risk of dying in the bath every year, but it's not the same as the risk of actually taking a single bath. So it's not a, not really a good comparison. So I put this into this article. I checked all the maths on COVID really, really well. I hadn't really checked the, the the skiing, the horse riding. I was just taking that on trust. I didn't really think much of it. That was a mistake. made it made a mistake, which I regret. Then the financial times put The bath thing in the headline. They said, oh, COVID, it's like taking a bath. Okay. Then the sun put it in their headline. Expert says COVID is the same risk as taking a bath. Then the mirror said, an expert spoke to the sun and said, which I okay, I didn't speak to the sun. But he says, same risk as, as taking a bath. And on and on it went. Um and I, th- I was just getting more and more uncomfortable because it, there was such big play being made of this. And it was just a little thing i tucked away at the bottom of this, this Financial Times article. And I told my wife, I'm just not really that sure about, it, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't, it doesn't quite seem right, does it? And she's like, Tim, go and check. So then I you know, got the register of deaths and I got all the data and looked and I realized my mistake. So a couple of interesting things about that. Um, Apart from some people think it's interesting that I made a mistake. I don't think that's interesting. Happens a lot. <laughs> but, <laughs>
0: Definitely does. Yeah, of course. Yeah.
1: So, so number one, um, nobody, el- nobody spotted the mistake. It was out there for days. Nobody spotted It's completely wrong. So that's interesting. But number two, I don't think I've ever written or said anything that's ever got so much press coverage. And it got press coverage because it was really surprising and interesting. And it was surprising and interesting because it was wrong. The most interesting thing I've ever said and therefore the most reported thing I've ever said because it was wrong. And one of the other, book, the other chapters in the book is all about the filters through which statistics go. And they exist in academia, they exist in publishing, they exist in media. They're not necessarily kind of conspiracy you know, stories. It's just, just certain stuff is going to come to your attention. And it's going to come to your attention because it's news, because it's exciting, it's interesting. And one of the things that makes things interesting is being completely wrong. So yeah, that's a statistic I've tried to get people to stop repeating. I hope they stop repeating. Um, but it's also a really interesting lesson for me uh, about this, this interestingness filter out there. That's distorting what it is that we read.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, I've got a question actually from Daniel Viren, a secondary school student studying economics. He says don't the examples you give, such as the Van Megen fraud, ultimately come down to the confirmation bias when one anchors judgments rigidly to their prior beliefs?
1: I, I know what you mean. I mean, what, the moment I heard about confirmation bias, I started seeing confirmation bias everywhere, right? And that's what confirmation bias yeah. is all about. Yeah, we, we see to some extent what we expect to see. Um, one of my favorite little stories about this is um, an expert in the perception of the psychology of smell told me, about. there's a classic study in the field um, that you get people to smell this thing and you say... Um, this is the smell of, uh, of gourmet cheese. And wh- what do you think of it? How do you rate this smell? Or you get people to smell um, something and you say, this is the smell of um, stinky armpits. What do you, how do you rate it? What do you think? Um, and people have very, very different opinions about these smells. And of course, you can see the punchline coming. It's the same smell. And in fact, the researchers haven't lied because it's, it's an aromatic molecule found in both stinky cheese and stinky armpits. Oh, it's the same same smell. Um, but people's experience of the smell very, very different. So we see what we expect to see and that influences our thinking. Um but of course, you know, that's not an iron law. Of course we can be persuaded by new evidence. Of course we adjust to reality. Um I was really struck by how long it took me to realise how serious this pandemic was going to be, because I think I had The information in mid-February, but I don't think it hit for another three or four weeks. And it was just a case of struggling to adjust my worldview. So confirmation bias is out there, it's powerful, it affects experts, it affects all of us, but it's not the only thing governing our thinking. And if you're willing to test your ideas, to change your mind, to expose yourself to different points of view, to get a second opinion, um, you can overcome any of these biases. Not completely, not perfectly, but some of the time. And I'm afraid some of the time is going to have to be enough.
0: I think we've got a very, another question. is from Hema Allem. How can people expand their sources of information, that means information from opposing arguments, without being affected by the sort of confirmation bias you speak of?
1: It's a, it's a great question, and it's a big challenge because... Um, I discussed the work of Charles Tabor and Milton Lodge Um, um, doesn't even always help just absorbing more arguments. You can actually, if you're very selective and aggressive in the way you read those arguments, you're just picking up more more confirmation of your views while dismissing alternative views. So you've got to read with an open mind. Um, A couple of things I recommend. Uh, One is blogs. I think I'm a bit old-school, I know I'm partying like it's 2005, but I still read good blogs. Um, And, uh, you know, a good blogger will tend to be looking at news sources that you're not necessarily looking at. Well, have a particular angle. So at the moment, for example, there's an economist called Joshua Gans, who's blogging about the pandemic, but he's particularly looking at information, like what do we know and not know uh, about who has the virus, how are tests working, surveillance, all that sort of thing. It's just a particular angle. And so he's reading loads of stuff about that. And so I get exposed to people and ideas that I wouldn't necessarily uh, come across. The other thing that I think I find really useful is to read slower news. So I I write for the FT magazine um, at the weekend. So although it's a daily newspaper, I tend to have a sort of weekly take on the news. And I love other weekly sources like the New Yorker or the Economist. Um, I find the slower the news, the more it sort of filters out a lot of noise that's, that's not especially helpful. So those, those two things I, I find useful. Um, there are books as well. Books are good. Um, but it's, it's, there's no perfect way to do it. No perfect way. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much, Tim. Uh, I think we're kind of running out of time. Despite actually having a lot of questions in the queue, I will have to stop the Q&A session uh, here and take an opportunity to say that it has been a great pleasure um, for both me and I think for all of you to listen to Tim Harford. Uh, Thank you so much for taking part. We are most grateful you could find the time uh, in your busy schedule to be with us here today. And I would like to thank, of course, our speaker, um, Tim Harford, for delivering such a stimulating lecture and uh, opening up so many things we, uh, you know, we need to, to investigate and, and look. Uh, and I would like to remind you that his book uh, is published actually today and it's available to, to order. So thank you all so much and have all a very good evening.